Hello, and welcome to Bundle of Arrows, a Tulo Center alumni podcast. This is Julie Holloway from the Tulo Center team. In this episode, we welcome Anna Demchuk Morin from Enoch Cree Nation, Ernest Jack from West Bank First Nation, and Ty Thompson from White Bear First Nation. Anna, Ernest, and Ty all oversee tax administration in their communities, and today they talk about how they help their community members and their chief and councils understand their work, explained a bit about their annual work cycle and what it includes, and then talked about the importance of taxation to First Nations and discussed some of the projects they're currently working on. Let's get to it. Hello, we're excited to bring you another edition of our alumni podcast, Bundle of Arrows. I'm joined by some new guests today, Anna Demchuk from Enoch Cree Nation, Ernest Jack from West Bank First Nation, and Ty Thompson from White Bear First Nation. So I'd love to have you each introduce yourselves and let us know a little bit more about you and your community and the work that you do. Uh, So with that, I'll have you, I'll go with Anna. Okay, good morning, everyone. I'm Anna Demchuk slash Morin from the Enoch Cree Nation. I've been the tax manager out here probably for the last 10, 15 years. I also work with our water called EUL. And uh, I represent Enoch, which actually owns the River Cree Resort and Casino. I'm sure some of you have visited our casinos from time to time. And um, at the very beginning, I learned from just on the go without any of the taxation courses or anything. And then eventually uh, I met up with Ty at some of the taxation courses we decided to take back in 2016, 2017 or 2018, somewhere in there. And uh, Ernest and I go way back too. So anyway, it's nice to be able to work with all of you and uh, looking forward to this podcast. Hi, I'm um, uh, Tyson Thompson. I'm from White Bear First Nation uh, out in Saskatchewan. Um, I've been working for the nation going on my fifth year now. I came through the Tulo courses, um, which are, you know, amazing for me um, as a person. Uh, it helped helped me uh, build my capacity coming in um, straight from the oil field to to be able to understand um, the need in my community for 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 taxation and and what it really is about. You know, I know there's a lot of uh, information out there that's not necessarily true Yeah, when it comes to, to taxation. And I'm happy to be here and thanks for inviting me and, and I'm excited. Thank you. My name is Ernest Jack. I'm the surveyor of taxes for the West Bank First Station. I've worked for West Bank for, it'll be 20 years in March and have been in property tax since 1991. So, I don't know. What's the math? 32 years? <laughs> Long time anyway. And uh, as far as West Bank is concerned, um, we are just going to be over $3 billion in assessed values this coming year. Um, so we've been growing continuously, and it never stops uh, being interesting, that's for sure. So I'm really excited to be able to talk with everyone. Awesome. Thank you so much. So in our last episode, we ended up chatting a little bit about taxpayer communications and relationship building with taxpayers. But of course, that's not the only people that you have to communicate with regularly in your jobs. I'm just curious about some of the questions that you might receive from your community members uh, in doing tax administration uh, or what it looks like communicating with chief and counsel, some of those questions that you might uh, get from them and then how you address them. For me, we have... um 
we're under custom elections now. We used to be under the Indian Act, but every three years we have an election. So I always find it so important that you get new leaders. We have uh, 11 leaders and this year half were new ones. So every time we have an election, I make sure I do a bit of an orientation with the new chief and council. Because even though we have some of the old ones continuing on, we have the new ones that are just learning. So some of them wonder, what do we do as tax administrators? They, you know, they have to be informed about the laws, the main laws and the annual laws. And some of it can be overwhelming because even though they get elected, doesn't mean they know everything that's involved with the taxation area. So usually I try to do a bit of a binder and uh, an orientation going over questions with them and informing them about the annual laws every year's. And it's funny because usually chief and council do their budgets in January, but I have to wait to do the expenditure law. So we do a draft budget with chief and council. And then I tell them it's not really 100% approved until I do my expenditure law. So then that takes a little bit of a learning curve because they just think their word is 100%. But I said it's based on what my taxes also generate. So anyway, I, I really think it's important that all of us go through new leadership that it's better to communicate with them and make sure that they really know what you're doing and where you're coming from. And especially paying attention to the laws that, you know, they take the time to read them. Sometimes I'll uh, give them an assignment and say, here's your reading material for tonight. I know it's boring, but <laughs> I would appreciate you looking at it. And, you know, feel free to call me if you have any questions. And no question is uh, a dumb question because they're learning too, just like we were. So I really try to I don't know, help them along just because I know they're new at it. And um, rather than pretending to know what it is all about, I would rather them be informed. So that's what I usually try to do, especially with new leadership. No, that's awesome. No, I think um, I think uh, for me at White Bear, I, I came into a, a system that was, um, there wasn't a lot of enforcement. So when I started, I was, um, I had a mentor, uh, a consultant um, who did our, our taxation for, for about 20 years and and there wasn't a lot of communication that was happening between our council and 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 him and when i came in i uh i felt that there was a need to to sit down with with some of our council members and and kind of go over what we what the goals were and it was always the same as um you know we have a project that we've been trying to get done for about 20 years and and they just wanted it to get done so um, for me, I, I learned to uh, communicate as direct as I could with our council. We determined the the, uh, the priority of the nation when it came to taxation, and, and I kind of took it from there and communicated that you know the steps to get there, and I broke it down for them and, and why we haven't been able to achieve it. And and you know they were they were happy they were happy with what I was able to tell them, and they were able to understand why there was such a long delay in, in what had happened. And a lot of it had to do with the FME not being established or implemented, sorry. And then, you know, just a lack of capacity, you know, having capacity issues there and, and, and addressing them. And, and once we addressed them, you know, they were, they were on board for getting the project done. Recently, we, we had an election at the West Bakefield Station and um, we brought back a previous chief that had served for off and on for 20 years, uh, Chief Robert Louie. So he understands the, the tax situation, and um, but he's, it, we had an orientation uh, situation where 
I came and presented for, I think it was about two hours just on the processes of how property tax works, how the budget is established, how our rates are, considerations for what our future is going to look like. And we, when we um, pass a law, there's a, we have an established process that goes to our um, advisory council after first reading and you know, then it goes back to council again. And if there's any significant changes, we have to review the, those and present them. But that's our lawmaking process. As far as an interesting question from the community, um, we had one of our people in public works want to know what we spend the tax money on. One of the the response I gave was, well, pays for your job. I mean, that's we fund you 100%. Uh, your equipment that you drive around in, the, the tools that you use, uh, those are all paid for by property tax money or revenues. So that was the benefit, and it was really happy to know that. But that's one of the things that we're also going to uh, concentrate on is getting the message out to the community on one of the things that we actually make contributions for, for tax money. And the differences between uh, what the members can expect and what the non-member residents can expect. And we have going on 12,000 of them. So that's an interesting view, that's for sure. I loved the idea of like the orientation package, uh, Anna, and I, I can I can imagine that putting that time in at the very beginning when you do have a new council would help, like you said, get everybody up to speed faster and maybe with a with a better understanding of some of the work that you do as tax administrators, then their questions wouldn't be so about the basics. It would be more uh interesting questions like they understand it a bit better do you find that the learning that you're able to help that learning curve with that orientation have you tried doing did you do it have you gone through an election cycle where you didn't do that and noticed a difference uh, in the level of understanding I think when I first took over we had another person that used to look after it in the finance department but they really didn't pay attention to the taxation area there's like half a million dollars owing when I jumped in so anyway, and they thought, oh, that's, you know, it was from 10 years ago. But I said, well, I don't care. I talked to legal and we can still collect it. So I told the chief and counsel at that time that, you know, it still qualifies to be paid because it was outstanding taxes. So anyway, I jumped in and um, luckily I got half a million dollars paid to the band. It took me maybe three months, but I did it because um, I know Ty knows me. I'm, I'm usually like a dog with a bone. I'm going to go and get it. If you owe us money, I'm going to try collect it from you. And you know, I did. And then we had some leadership at the time that didn't understand the laws because we've been in taxation since the 1970s under the Indian Act, under Section 83, because we were oil rich and we have tons of lines running through our reserve. So anyway, back in the day, we collected taxes since then, but some band members really weren't um, aware of that. It's a huge learning curve because sometimes they don't think you can do what you can do with those laws, but those laws give us so much power and if you have an understanding from leadership and the elders and the community and the taxpayers that you know, those are our laws. And I don't think we've ever lost a case in court if it's ever went to court that um, 
the taxpayer learns pretty fast that they have to pay it and we're being reasonable. So I think the other thing I do too with the orientation kit is some council this year asked for what areas can we spend it on? So with the FMA toolkit, um, they're really helpful with outlining exactly which areas they can spend money on. So that's really helpful too, to include any appendices that you can to clarify stuff like that. So then they know uh, that they can't do a per diem, but you know, they have to spend in certain areas. Some band members think, well, hey, why can't you just split it up amongst us and do a per diem? So then you, you tell them pretty fast, well, we can't do that. And this is why. So I think the more informed they are, uh, the more helpful it is to the community members and understanding those laws. Yeah, no, I, I remember when I first came in, and and like I said, we had a we had a little bit of a, an, the department was a little bit un, unorganized, and I didn't really have any um, any documents to to go by my history. I actually relied heavily on the FNTC to to provide me with our um, and the, and the Gazette to provide me with any historical um, laws, our annual laws. We, I moved into an office and and they gave me a new computer and they said, "Here, here you go, tax man. <laughs> you know, go hard." But I was able to to uh, to lean on uh, FNTC heavily at the time. But I, 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 you just reminded me that I was actually working on uh, through with the toolkit uh, from um, FNTC. I was working on the. Uh, they give you a template to do your First Nations. Um, sort of tax information for, for people so that you can hand it out to your leadership. And over the years, like right from my first year, I've only been in this for five years, but I've really learned that you have to take a uh, different uh, strategy when you're communicating with them, um, with your leadership and with your members and with your, um, with your uh, leaseholders. Um, for me, um, it's, I think it's really important for me to, to, uh, to share my experience um, with my the first council I was working under um, basically it was you know I had to communicate what we we're missing out on um, the potential of our of our of our project and uh, and you know um, the gaps that we needed to fill before we could actually get it done and um, with our members it was more of a you know um, we need to get this done. This is what we're missing out on. And I know that's the strategy that we're taught at Tulo. And, and, you know, it really does work. And, and um, when I talk to our, our lessees or our, uh, our cottagers association back home, um, you know, I, I make, make sure that they understand that, you know, we're, we're, I'm here to protect them and, and make sure that they're treated fairly and that we, we deal with their concerns and, and we're not necessarily here to, you know, gouge them. I'm going to make sure that that doesn't happen, and and I give them a rundown of the process, and and uh, you know, reassure them that we're using the the same assessors that they works everywhere else in Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan's a little bit of a different monster when it comes to to uh, assessment and the cycle that they use there. You know, that was a big adjustment for me, but I was able to 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 work through it and and uh, communicate the differences between, um, you know, where I got my training in BC and the Saskatchewan assessment cycle with my council. And that played a big role in, in the reason that we weren't able to get our project done um, sooner than, than, we, uh, than we have. I think, that, I think that's really important to, to focus on, uh, you know, a strategy before you start communicating because 
you can you can go down the wrong path sometimes. I think it's important to establish with your community that uh, taxation revenues are actually first and foremost public funds, and they're not like the the First Nations to do with whatever they want to do with fund. And you have to, you know, inform your council right from the very start that there are a lot of strings attached to the revenues and responsibilities that you have to the taxpayers in protecting their confidentiality, you know, and under and have the, having them understand what you're spending the money on and that it's an allowable expense. I also um, like to tell council that property tax jurisdiction is the purest form of sovereignty that you that you have and then you can your enforcement of that it's something that that's hard to define unless you define it for them and share with them that you know that's why it's a huge responsibility not only for your members, but for your mem- non-member residents. A couple of things that you touched on that are interesting to me. So one, I know in this area of work, we do talk about tax uh, with people that don't really have an understanding. Some of the things that you said that it people think it might be based on income or even when they hear property tax that they think it might be a tax on members. And what we're really talking about is non-member occupiers um, on our lands. And then really, I know in class, we talk a lot about pre-contact or what it looked like in the early days and just that concept of taxes, the Chinook, T-A-K-S-I-S, this concept where if another uh, nation was hunting on your territory or crossing your lands, there would be some kind of... uh, payment for that and how these idea the idea of taxation is so inherent to our governance i've enjoyed those conversations uh in class and another thing that uh you that you spoke to that reminded me of previous conversations on this podcast was just about the support that the tax commission the first nations tax commission provides somebody else spoke about before they came to the tula center they didn't realize that there was just a real wealth of resources at the Tax Commission, uh, Ty, you mentioned the First Nations Gazette, uh, www.fng.ca. There's been a lot of work in this area to help um, tax administrators be successful in their jobs. But there is still, I think, a lot of unfamiliarity about what the role of a tax administrator is within our band administration. So uh, just really like to hear what your annual cycle looks like what are those things that will keep you busy from month to month and what you uh, what yeah what your day-to-day can look like just uh, doing your in your role as a tax administrator you know your role is so important because one of the things that we learn at Tulo too through the courses is that you make a schedule you make a schedule as to what you do now what you do on January February etc and even though you put out the tax notices that then you got to have a collections time because some people don't pay it on time, then you got to collect that also. But before you even start that, you have to make sure that you have a good appraiser, that you have a relationship with your appraiser that knows your area because I'm Alberta, Ty, Saskatchewan, different regulations and, and uh, Ernest is BC. So all of us have different regulations to follow. And for me, we're oil and gas rich in Alberta. So we also have an Alberta board that 
that we have to go to for the linear and we have to approve our assessor through this Alberta board in order for us to get the assessment done with all our linear. And for Enoch, we have probably about 600 lines that run through our area. So I think it's really important to have a good relationship um, as one of your job tasks is to build that relationship with an assessor. And I've been very lucky. Um, my late dad actually handled the taxes way back in the 70s when he was on council. And the tax assessor we have now, his dad worked with my dad. And then now I'm working with the son and we have a relationship. So it's really cool because he also helped us with some land claims information because they were involved with our taxation stuff for the last 40 years or so. So it's cool to have those kind of relationships. And it can only be done if your your job description, if that's what you're working in, and then you add on to doing extra by, you know, I go for lunch with him. We talk about different things so that we have that relationship building and then just keeping on task. Because uh, when we went through the pandemic, I was laid off for a month, but it was really weird. And I think I was the only tax administrator probably laid off because the new some of the new council didn't realize your, how important your job was. So within about a month, I was getting called, you know, Anna, we need you back. None of us can do your job, blah, 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 that, you know, we realized the importance of we got to get this done. We got to get that done. And then also, um, if you have a loan with the First Nations Finance Authority, you have to meet the regulations and make sure you get everything done with all the laws and all of that stuff. So all those scenarios have to fit in and, and your role is so important to make sure that you do do your tax job and that your laws are followed and that everything is abided by and that you meet those deadline dates. Um, I know at the Tulu course, that really helped me with having a schedule so you know exactly what you have to do and when it has to be done. Um we tried to hire a consultant a long time ago that tried to make us a schedule, but I threw that out. I said that schedule, we already have our own schedule because Tulu was so good with teaching us that in class that you don't need a consultant to come in and tell you you have a schedule, that Tulu really gives you those resources so that you know exactly what you have to do and when you have to do it. You don't have to waste money on a consultant. If you know your job, you'll get it done exactly when you need to get it done and follow the cycle so that you know everything is done on time. And, and um, I think you're more appreciated that way because I think that, yeah, well, your job is important. I can't just lay you off, you know? So anyway, for me, that was a good learning experience for uh, my leadership at the time. Yeah, no, um, for, for me out in White Bear, I think we have a, a, uh, a thousand lot residential development on reserve, but we've only implemented our commercial and industrial property taxes. So same thing, we're, we're oil rich. We, uh, most of our, our folios are, are oil and gas, a few, a few pipeline uh, folios. Um, majority of the time it, for me, it's, it's data entry, um, uh, my day-to-day stuff and, 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 and enforcement's been pretty smooth for me, knock on wood. Um, I know I'm shifting into, into res- residential property taxes this year and, and I know that's going to come with some, uh, you know, maybe some appeals, maybe some some different uh, scenarios that I'm that I haven't had to deal with yet. But for me, I, I guess as a tax administrator, and and where I come from, um, I think the most important thing for me the last five years has been a, being able to um, to to create a strategy. Um, strategize with my council and 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 some of our uh, administrative staff on implementing um, you know some land 
management systems because we were weak. I, I, I was able to, to help, especially with um, my training at Tulo, um, my certificate that I got out of there in the lands program. It helped me be able to communicate with our lands manager, you know, that there were some outstanding issues in housekeeping that we needed to, to figure out before we could actually implement our property taxes. You know, I, when I came in, we were um, collecting property taxes, our commercial property taxes from 2008 to 2018 is when I started. My first weekend, um, we had just, the council had just uh, approved their assessment law. So we were just, we were just implementing a law that we've been pass, or, uh, collecting taxes on. So I was able to go through it and look at it. And then, and, and I, right away, I, uh, I identified that we weren't on the proper schedule and I actually had to make some amendments right off the hop as soon as I was Fresh out of fresh out of Tulo and and given my my computer and my desk and and I have to start with some hard stuff right off the hop, so it's been it's been pretty smooth sailing so far, um, but there have been instances like that where you know you get kind of get thrown into the fire and you have to you have to figure it out and you know you're, you're schooling and I do refer back to my textbooks all the time you know I have to they're they're on my main screen so I'm kind of all over the place it's it's sort of. Uh, Organized chaos sometimes is what I like to call it. Well, I'm sure Andre will love to hear that you reference the textbooks regularly and that they're on your desktop. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no question about a tax cycle. We've been running our tax cycle for ever since I've been involved in property tax in the very beginning, practically the first day. That was the first thing we had to understand. Well, what do you do? When do you do it? How do you do it? And who do you do with? <laughs> when council asks, well, what are you doing? I said, well, what month is this? And, you know, if it's October, I, I can tell you what I'm doing. Or if it's February, I can tell you what I'm doing. Like, say, for example, uh, we're in December, so we're just uh, reconciling our role because we're going to be accepting our new role as of January. And, and for us, that... That means we're really interested in seeing what our new construction is going to bring us, or as the term that they use, BC assessment, non-market change. That is your new construction. That'll tell you what kind of uh, revenue that new revenue that you're going to be able to generate, and you won't have to put the squeeze on uh, the other people. <laughs> To generate that, you know, like all depends on what what happens in your market in Kelowna, you know, like that's which establishes our benchmarks for our values on uh, West Vancouver Station. Uh, it's one of the highest in the country. Now, it used to be a very good deal to come here and and live here. Everybody still wants to come here and live here. But uh, the, that cost has certainly gone up. And it snows there too, Ernest. <laughs> <laughs> As my brother found out that just moved to Kelowna a couple years ago, it's like, he's like, they have snow here. This is BS. He's using a snowblower. That's a really good point. Like for me, I'm, I'm going to take that and, and, and share that at home. Is They're worried that we're going to lose a lot of our, our residential 
leaseholders once, uh, and it's and it's kind of been happening already. I, I know they they know it's coming. Um, a lot of the the homes and and the cottages have, have gone to market in the last year. Mostly, I don't want to say because the tax the tax is coming, but I think you know, uh, COVID played a, a lot of a, a role in that. Using that inf- that information, you just you just said that comment about you know it, it costs more than it did, but there's still there's still demand to 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 live there in Kelowna. You know, I you know if I could move there, I would. If, you know, so. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna use that and and uh, communicate that to my council and uh, our uh, our resort our resort management is is really scared that we're gonna lose a lot of our cottagers. Yeah, especially your cottagers would feed into all the natural casino and whatever else, right? They're feeders to come and use the utilize that stuff. So I get it because we only have um, one residential. We have a 123 condo unit that we tax, but that's the only residential at Enoch so far. Um, but I think the other neat thing that you guys all pointed out when I'm sitting here thinking about it is that our networking, like since taking the courses at Tulu and even prior to that, just um, getting to know Ernest and stuff and sharing with Enoch similarities to Kelowna, although we don't have an Okanagan, that has been really great to have that networking and to be able to pick up the phone and talk to whether it's Ernest or uh, Ty or Trenton or uh, David or whoever, that it's nice to have that resource because I never had that before I took the courses. And now that we have a team building thing, it's so nice to see each other. You become like a family within a family with taxation, I find. And, you know, I, I said to Ernest this year, I gave him a phone call and said, hey, Ernest, when's our next workshop? We haven't had one because of the pandemic that we need to get together here because I really miss those connections too. Because you do a lot of talking and networking and you have a lot of similarities. And also it helps you to plan and maybe think of things differently of how to approach it in your community. So I think it's so important to have those networking opportunities with each other. I totally agree. Uh, So for those of our listeners that are unfamiliar, Ernest uh, sits on the board for an organization or an association called the First Nations Tax Administrators Association. And that association oversees uh, accreditation for uh, tax administrators and also holds uh, an annual conference, which before the pandemic was a great place for tax administrators to get together and just chat about some of the topics that we're chatting about now. And we are actually planning on doing an episode uh, with some of the members of the FNTAA board just to learn a little bit more about that association and just share some of um, the work that they do. So uh, stay tuned on that one for sure. I appreciate that there are, we've talked about residential taxpayers, commercial taxpayers and utility taxpayers. And we've also talked a little bit just, there's a couple of people that, um, on the call that are, that tax under the uh, FMA, the First Nations Fiscal Management Act, and then Ernest at West Bank taxes under Section 83 of the Indian Act. And that might be, um, maybe people don't understand the differences between some of those things. So I just wondered if you could reflect a little bit on those differences. And Anna, I know you were under Section 83 at Enoch before and now the FMA. So we just found that under Section 83, it was, it was good because we had our tax law that we implemented in the 70s. So I always tell Manny Jules, hey, we were there before FMA, really, because we were in the 70s. But it was a nice sort of that you could use the Indian Act. But as you know, everybody's kind of going away from the Indian Act. So leadership had talked way back in 2015, 2017, that maybe we should join FMA and maybe we would be stronger because I think there's like over 200 bands now that are with uh, FMA. 
And anyway, when we looked at it, we had Trenton come out and do um, a spiel to us at a leadership meeting in Kelowna during one of our workshops. And we just found that we might be stronger. And there's, you know, there's toolkits and there's different resources available that you're not on your own then. And you're keeping up to date with what's going on. So we have found it to be very helpful. I think it's been very useful. And I understand, though, by Ernest and them are still under Section 83. It's worked for them and it was working for Enoch. But I just think it was nice that we did have change. But you can still be involved with um, the First Nations Tax Commission, even if you're Section 83 or FMA. So you don't have to feel forced to change that. One's not better than the other. It's whatever works for you as a nation. And you just go with it. It gives you power regardless of, of what you're under. And the other thing that I wanted to mention was you had mentioned a little about the fng.ca uh, website that I always point that out to council because um, that's one of the things the tax commission had put together before. And basically everybody's laws, every kind of BCR that you made is in there. So I always tell Enoch, you can look at some of your ancestors' laws, you know, whether it's an animal control law or uh, they had like um, a weed thing at Enoch that you couldn't have this notorious weed thing, but now we have cannabis. You know, it's kind of neat for them to look at some of these laws that, hey, maybe we could actually get that one out. And there was a traffic law and everything else. But it's neat that they have compiled for all of Canada, all of your laws within an FNG so that you can have a look back and see what you've done. Um, and they really help. And you can snoop and look at other people's laws, too, from the other band. So it's really helpful. As uh, the former communications officer for the First Nations Tax Commission, some of the topics that you're talking about are very close to my heart. The Section 83 Bylaw Digitization Project is where we worked with the federal government to take archival archived laws and get them in there to be more accessible as a resource. Uh, and the ability to go back in time, as you say, to some of these laws that were created in the very early days. Um, but then also even current laws, if you're looking at building out a new law, uh, the, the ability to go and reference similar laws from other First Nations across the country in terms of like benchmarking and just seeing what's out there, it is a really helpful uh, resource that uh, for anybody, for for the uh, any Canadian to be able to kind of research those laws and see what's going on on First Nation lands. Uh, Anna point that just like talked about Section 83 and Ernest, it's working quite well for West Bank. I uh, wondered if you had any thoughts on uh, Section 83 taxation. Oh, absolutely. I'll tell you the reason why West Bank First Nation is still under the Indian Act and the ministerial oversight. Well, because when they were negotiating their self-government act, the people, the non-member residents, which at the time was, there was, I think, 8,500 that were living here, and they just weren't comfortable with uh, if, self, if self-government if self meant that it would be in right of West Bank instead of right of Canada. And the people that lived here and their leasehold interests they wanted. They felt certainly a lot more comfortable with with the ministerial oversight, and so that's the reason why West Bank hadn't changed. But after the Self Government Act was established, that's when uh, the First Nation Tax Commission and the FMA came into effect. Was a year later, and there's a section of a regulation that has to be amended and a section of of the FMA that uh, prevents self-governing First Nations from 
joining. And, and, and the real question is because if you look at who belongs, there's not one single self-governing First Nation that belongs to FMA. And there's a reason for that. You know, it's, it's because the language is restrictive in accordance with your self-government and your ability as a self-governing First Nation to acquiesce that jurisdiction. That It just can't be done. And uh, that has to be worked on and, and, and redeveloped to a point where there's some give and take between self-governing First Nations and FMA. That's where the real issues are. Yeah, I think you've made, raised some great points. And even uh, we saw in the early days of the FMA when it launched, there needed to be some updates, some legislative amendments, just because as you begin working with new legislation, you start to see these issues. And I know the, the First Nations Tax Commission and the other FMA institutions and all the First Nations work really closely together on looking for at what's next in terms of where we're going with some of this work that we're doing, because it can be quite a complicated landscape, this First Nation jurisdiction and administration and governance, as you all well know. And sometimes one fit doesn't fit everybody. So that's why it's good to have, like we had our legal counsel involved with um, FMA too, and we made the changes to our main laws of 2016. So we went back and forth a couple times, but that's where you get your own legal counsel too, to make sure that it fits for what you're doing. Ty, I can't recall if White Bear was under Section 83 at the start, or did you enter the FMA? Was there a transition, or was it an FMA only? From from the records that I was able to, to, to get, um, we actually did trans, transition from, from Section 83, but I, I had very little information. I came in, we were already uh, scheduled under under the Act, and, and from... What I have been able to track down in some of the information from from from, from council who are there when, when they did shift, it was because of the because of a capacity issue. Um, there was no enforcement on our on our taxes. Basically, the only taxes we were collect were from the oil field and uh, our pipeline. Um, they did unsuccessfully try to implement it within our resort, but I think the scope of the the project was just too big for for one person uh, back then, and and when we shifted into the FMA, I think they saw the need for capacity building and all the supports that you were going to get under under the FMA, and and that's what led them to to shifting out of the Indian Act into the FMA was just all the supports that you had and the capacity help and and you know for me, I think. Uh, for white bear and our in our current regime um, commercial property taxes with all the with the FN, FNTC toolkit um, you know it was easy for me to 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 jump in and and kind of establish some integrity in our system um, I wasn't really familiar with uh, the uh, section 83 regime I can imagine that that transition would have been quite a bit of work. And we've already spent a bit of time talking about what the day-to-day and what the annual cycle looks like for each of you. And it sounds quite busy, uh, but I know that you also have to fit in some other forward-looking projects. So beyond that day-to-day work, what are some of the projects that you have on your horizon? Well, for me, for White Bear, 
when I came in in, in 2018, um, I was told that we need to implement uh, residential property tax on our on our White Bear Lake Resort development. Um, back in back in the 1940s, our land was leased um, to the to the adjacent uh, town, and they developed a resort on our on our lands. Um, and that was administrated by an by our Indian agent and and whoever was else was involved back then, I guess the town council. But when that had lease expired um, in nineteen seventy nine, our our nation assumed the uh, the management of of that development, and uh, they wanted they saw the benefit of having it, and they saw that you know it it was a, a revenue a revenue maker. Sorry lack of a better term um but it, it did bring in a lot of revenue for the town and and we wanted uh wanted to to take that back over and and establish and uh, implement our jurisdiction over our, our lands but we didn't have the tools that they have today especially with the fma um in order to implement our, our property tax regime there um that's the project that i'm working on right now is that is that property tax implementation and and when i came in straight out of tool like i i came in like full ready to get ready to roll this out and and uh, all my training and all the education that, that tool gave me to, to to make these people pay they, they needed to pay right now as soon as i got there but, but you know it was a pretty steep learning curve in Saskatchewan. They do a, a four-year assessment cycle, so that played a big role in in why things were so delayed. Um, Sam only does regional assessments, and uh, we had to wait for them to come back into our region to get our assessment done. And that was just that was just done last year, and and COVID actually delayed that by a year. So our assessment wasn't done till mid June of 2022. It was supposed to be done early January 2021. So with that delay and, and then plus their, their four-year assessment cycle, you know, it was it was a steep learning curve for me because I was with the training at Tulo, you know, every other province does an annual assessment for for their, uh, when they, in their cycles. It was pretty much a waiting game for me. But yeah, that's the big project that I'm working on is implementing our residential property tax. And it's, it's going to bring in about early estimation uh, between 1.5 and 1.7 million a year in annual tax revenue. Well, for us, we have several different things. I've been trying to get a DCC law, which is a development capital cost law done at Enoch, but it's been a it's been a tough one to try get done because we have so many people that approach us because Enoch is so close to the city of Edmonton. And a lot of them see us as a gold mine. So some of them think that, you know, we can build on your property, but then they don't want to help with the capital cost. So anyway, and West Bank has been a good learning tool that way is to make sure that a lot of these guys that want to develop, that they pay for the capital cost instead of us looking for grants and things for them to develop. But sometimes it's hard to sell it to leadership because maybe the leadership just wants to build. But sometimes we're being used because there's lots of people out there that will use you too. Uh, for projects. So I think it's a safety net. So hopefully, I've given a draft to CNC and to our legal to sort of have a look at it. And just for, I sort of put it in their thought process, like, you know, here's the law that I'm thinking about, have a look at it, see what you think. And you know, it's a safety net law that helps us with that. So I've left it on the table with uh, leadership for the last couple months now. And last year, I did that too. So we'll see what happens. The other big thing we're working on, of course, is we have a health project that is a private center, but um, there's pros and cons to that. 
it's a private clinic for hip replacement and stuff that it's good and bad. I know other um, other people got into trouble with trying to do these health projects too. So it's 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 sort of pros and cons to that. Some people like it, some people don't, but it's something that they're working on at Enoch. The other thing that we're working on, of course, is the big fat thing that um, Ty and I just went to Vancouver for our leadership two weeks ago, I think on the 30th for the meeting with Manny Jules. And the fact thing is, you know, for your fuel, your alcohol, your cannabis and your tobacco tax, that for Enoch, that's going to generate a lot of money because, I mean, we're, we're busy. We're the top gas station in Alberta. So for gas and tobacco, we know we're not one already. So those are going to be huge revenues that instead of paying to the province of Alberta that we can pay to back to us and our taxation local revenues. And then, of course, we have a cannabis shop. And we also have alcohol uh, because we're a casino. Uh, so, um, and we're very busy. So I'm looking forward to implementing that kind of tax. And it's going to really generate a lot of more revenues into our general taxation budget. So those are some of the things that we have uh, that we're working on. Oh, that's pretty exciting. Um, at West Bank, it's not that we wouldn't want to be part of FMA. So don't get me wrong about that. In the past three years, I've been working to uh, develop those laws. So we're FMA ready to go. I mean, like we've developed, redeveloped our assessment law and our tax law uh, and brought those all up to speed. So, I mean, it's not like we're, we haven't been working towards that. It's just that we keep on running up against that, the regulation aspect of it, like to amend that, there's another um, uh, tax revenues that we'd be able to collect is the property transfer tax. For us, it's huge. It'd be like two million bucks, and I like that uh, the fact tax. I mean, we already have three of the four. We just need to continuously uh, or finish developing the the cannabis part of it. Because where we collect and we collect, it has been as high as 2.5, but, uh, you know, different things, health uh, issues, uh, downturns in different economies have uh, made that tax. So we're, we're collecting the three products now. I think it's 1.7 for us. You know, there's certainly some significant revenues that we'd want to collect provided that we could. And so we've been looking at other ways, uh, even thinking about uh, you know the, the current Indian Act and what it says about the property transfer tax. And the language is almost identical. The reason that uh, the property transfer tax was pushed by FMA was because it was new. You know, they wanted to say, okay, well, uh, why concentrate on the Indian Act when you can have the newest, uh, most modern laws now in that, in that jurisdiction? So we understand that, but we certainly looked at, you know, because of our limitations of not being able to find that uh, compromise in order to get into FMA. We we looked at the Indian Act and have developed, a, we've also developed a law for that. I mean, it's not like we're not doing anything. <laughs> no, no. 
it sounds like that's like it's no small feat. You know, your uh, fuel, uh, alcohol, and tobacco taxes is three times my uh, my revenue. So it, it, <laughs> it's awesome. Well, uh, what I was going to say was that you know, f- right now the Indian Act uh, jurisdiction that we do have it generates uh, for us this year. It's going to be over eighteen million in our property tax. You know, it's it's not something that you can sneeze at you know it's very we're very active and uh, you know like we have about 5500 folios right now so i've had to hire an extra person so we we got three people in our department now wow for me i think i think um west bank taxing under the indian act you know is probably the most efficient way to do things you know like uh, bringing on a lot of liability through the fma that's a lot of work, and I, I understand where you're coming from there. And I appreciate like hearing that that you guys, you know, you've done all your due diligence to get there, but you're standing firm on on uh, your jurisdiction. You know, that's it's awesome. We do we do uh, an alcohol consumption tax. Uh, it's a provincial tax um, that they it's five percent of every alcoholic beverage sold on reserve um, and from our casino it's a small revenue for us we bring in about forty thousand dollars a year but um, just for for doing the paperwork and and creating the deal um, you know that's a that's a check that's cut to us monthly from from the provincial government so we don't have to to do and to administrate that very very much. I think in the conversations that I've had with people, um, non-Indigenous people, some of the work that I do, the, the people that I talk to, just talking about this concept of taxation and just, I find that people find it very interesting that there's all of these tax powers with these other levels of government, municipal, provincial and federal, but then there's this gap on uh, in First Nation communities on our lands. And so looking at ways to break free from dependency and create our own revenues to support our communities, to build our economies. I mean, of course, we're all passionate about that. That's why we're here. When I think about Indigenous reconciliation and and what that means, I mean, for me, a big part of it means economic reconciliation and working to find ways uh, that we can all, like Manny does say, like be uh, great and good and share in the resources and the wealth in these lands and the work that you each are doing is so important and hearing uh, the work that you've got ahead of you, the innovations that you're thinking about has just really been incredible. So thank you so much for taking the time today to chat with us and just share some of your perspectives. I've really appreciated it. Looking forward to the next one. That brings us to the end of this episode. Next time, we'll be chatting with alumni from our lands management program. Please watch for details on that in the next few weeks. If you like this episode and would like to join us as a guest on the show or have ideas for future topics we should discuss, let us know. You can connect with us on social media at Tulo Center. That's T-U-L-O-C-E-N-T-R-E. Till next time.